0: Welcome to Road Dirt, the podcast of RoadDirt.TV, a down-home grassroots motorcycle media covering what we like to call the ride life. I'm Rob Brooks, your host, thanks for tuning in with us. And this week, I wanna tell you a story of uh, one of our guest writers for our website. His name is Ted Edwards from up near Spokane, Washington. And a story he submitted to us that I'd like to read on his behalf called Searching for America. It's not about the roads. C.S. Lewis once wrote, to get even near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. I always thought epiphanies happened in scenic settings, a snowy mountaintop, the South Pacific Ocean, or the Australian outback at sunset. Mine came at a quilt show. My revelation happened on our last group ride when I overheard a comment made by Terry Hammond, the unquestioned leader of our mild hogs. You know, real men would be at the rodeo, Terry said. He was being facetious because, of course, we were at a quilt show. This is why we ride, Terry said. This is pure Americana. The quilt show we were attending was a fundraiser for the High Plains Fire Department. All of the quilts were donated by an elderly stage four cancer patient, seated in the far corner of the room, surrounded by smiling family and friends. Her decades of work hung around the Grange Hall like a timeline of her life, which in fact it was. Instantly, I realized where my years of writing had gone astray. I had been writing about our bikes, our roads, and ourselves, a rather ecocentric point of view. Decades were wasted missing my real mission to uncover the personal relationships that make this country unique in world history, the American ideals of love and sacrifice for the good of others, whether family, friend, or stranger. Terry was right. Men were at the rodeo taming beasts whose aim was to toss their riders into the dirt and then trample them. But men who put others first, who loved their community, who sacrificed themselves for the good of others, were attending the quilt show. It was a potluck also, so that helped. I had a new mission. My crusade was to seek the American ideal of love for our fellow countrymen everywhere I rode. The quest took me three weeks, covered eight states and over 4,000 miles. What I found brought joy, pain, and changed how I ride and write forever. All because of a quilt show in the small hamlet of High Plains. Now High Plains lies in a steep valley in southern Washington state, homes widely spaced, hidden in the rising mountain walls and thick pine forest. It's likely the entire town attended the quilt show and all of them could have squeezed into a school bus practically. Yet, they welcomed us strangers into their family, even though we had only known them for a few short hours and would be gone by morning. The quilts all sold well. A volunteer firefighter gave a tender speech, and a bluegrass band in the corner covered Psycho Killer by the talking heads, earning a standing ovation from everyone in the room under the age of 50. That is, both of us. Yet I could not stop thinking about the love it took for the elderly woman to give her life's work as a gift to a volunteer organization. Also, I could not decide which took more love and sacrifice, giving away a lifetime's collection of 70 quilts, or being a volunteer firefighter firefighter in a town nestled in the woods in a pine-prone northwest both laid down their life for their neighbors. And nothing is more American. I could have been on the motorcycle scraping my foot pegs on our secret roads or at the rodeo watching men beat their chest at their beastly conquest. However, neither act really has a lasting impact. Their memory and accolades fade as soon as the next corner or next contestant. That permanently changes What permanently changes the course of our lives and our nations is a sacrifice, not a show. I wondered if this trait existed only in small towns where interdependence is a survival trait. Would I discover it elsewhere? I would soon find out. So, days after leaving High Plains, I arrived at Laguna Seca Raceway in Salinas, California for the American Round of the World Superbike Races. Different arena, same rodeo, but with 230 horsepower instead of just one. As I sat working security at Laguna Seca's start and finish line, I could see the bikes roar by at over 150 miles an hour. They wiggled and flexed as their riders slid off the left side of the seat, forcing their bikes to turn when all the laws of physics were telling those bikes to go straight directly into the gravel. I'm not sure who had a harder job controlling their steeds, the High Plains Cowboys, Out on the Range, or the Laguna Seca Riders. Both of their mounts could maim or end lives without warning. The race was a spectacle worth watching, especially because there was no quilt show or potluck nearby. But I remembered my quest. It was not about the roads, or in this case, the track. It was about my search for American love and sacrifice for others. Which is why I turned my back to the asphalt rodeo and talked to the elderly man seated to my left. His name was Chuck Baird, and he has been at Laguna Seca since its opening in 1957. From that time until now, he has missed one race, one. That fact alone is even more stunning since Chuck is not a Laguna Seca employee, he's a volunteer. Laguna Seca stands out among the high-profile racetracks of the world because it is run by volunteers. The paddock crew gives their time freely to a track that draws racers and machines from around the globe, yet it is run by local volunteers who do it for the love of racing, the track, and each other. The list of special people at the track is long, but no one has been there longer than Chuck Baird. Chuck's elderly frame is short and he walks sometimes unsteadily with a cane in each hand. He wears two hats, a baseball cap with the track logo perched on top of his second hat, a wide brimmed straw hat to shield him from the sun. Chuck has a long beard like an old west gold miner and a soft voice that speaks with the innocence and enthusiasm of a young boy. And when Chuck speaks, I listen. What Chuck has witnessed in over 50 years of volunteering at Laguna Seca is really worthy of its own book. One day, if I've lived life right and the stars align, I'd be honored to write that book for him. If I did, it would have Chuck's stories about people from the golden age of racing. James Dean, Steve McQueen, Sterling Moss, Phil Hill, Freddie Spencer, John Cannon, Klessy Cummings, Miss Colin Chapman, Dan Gurney, just to name a few. When I asked Chuck about writing his history, was his, his history? His reply was, "If I empty it all out, I'll have nothing to talk about. No one will want to listen to my stories anymore." Well, I rather doubt that, actually. Nevertheless, I honored Chuck's request not to write his stories because I promised. And in America, our word is our bond. Okay, maybe just one story. His favorite story happened this past summer and involved race drag ride, drag racer Big Daddy Don Garlitz. When I asked him about this recent encounter, Chuck's eyes sparkled and he got as excited as a Boy Scout earning a merit badge. He put his arm around me, Chuck said, and I thought to myself, oh boy, Don Garlitz has his arm around me. He showed me the picture. It's heartwarming. Don Garlitz has his right arm around Chuck, and although Don is giving a beaming smile for the camera, like the pure southern gentleman he is, Chuck is not. Chuck's not even looking at the camera. He's looking up and to his left at Don Garlitz in admiration like a child admiring and meeting his hero. Chuck's ear-to-ear grin hides his teeth, but it reveals his worship of Don. That picture is on his coffee cup. Yet, if Don knew the whole story of Chuck Baird, I think the hero worship would be reversed. I don't know the whole story of Chuck Baird's life. It would take weeks to chronicle. I only spent a few hours with him, straining to hear his every word over the cacophony of engines, radios, and PA announcements. Yes, there was a race going on behind me and 60,000 fans were present to watch it, not me. Okay, maybe just a little bit, but I never lost sight of my goal. It was not about the roads or the track. It was about America's ability to generate people like Chuck who have volunteered their whole life in service of others. How could someone do this? Chuck summed it up for me in one sentence. Well, all my favorite memories are here, he said. This meeting galvanized my resolve to find the American virtues of love and sacrifice wherever I went. They were out there for the finding if I was willing to look days later, I found it next to my tent. From Laguna Seca, I turned east and rode through Yosemite National Park and camped in Lee Vining, California. There was a group camp to my left of six tents, and each one spat out an endless supply of adults and kids who played games with their glow sticks by moonlight. As I rested in my tent, an errant glow stick thrown by a young boy landed nearby. He came to retrieve it, with his dad trailing a few steps behind. Their conversation was brief and poignant. "'Dad, why can't I go play over there?' the boy asked, referring to my camping spot. "'Son?' a quiet, authoritative voice answered, "'That is his space. This is ours.' I was stunned by it. It was a simple lesson, really with far-reaching implications. How many car accidents, crimes, world wars could be prevented by that one simple rule? How much conflict could be resolved by a plain understanding of where your space starts and most importantly, where it ends? If every person or nation would follow this code, the world might be transformed. Maybe we should all go outside and play games with glow sticks more often, preferably by moonlight. Well, the squeals of playful delight continued in the camp, next door, and no more glow sticks came flying my way. I was finding American virtues really everywhere, and it wasn't hard to find. I even found it by the side of the road, a hellish road I hope to never see again. Highway 6 runs through the middle of the Nevada desert and is the most horrible place on Earth. Here, the angry angel of hot death deals out his daily dose of heat and despair upon a desolate landscape where shrubs struggle their whole life to grow knee-high. There are limited signs of life. A few scattered, apparently abandoned ranches, an occasional bird, and a random skinny cow struggling for sustenance. The whole ride through, not a single bug hit my face shield. The thermometer on my bike read 109 degrees, and the sign at the beginning of Highway 6 carried a foreboding warning. Next services, 162 miles. Unfortunately, I only got halfway through before I stopped. Pulled over by the side of the road was a black airport passenger van with a man and a group of young girls. The massive man dwarfed my 6'2 frame, his bald head, wide shoulders, barrel chest, and gray goatee would have been at home in a wrestling ring. Standing in the dwindling shade of the van were five teenage girls whose long faces told the desperate tale. They each clung to empty water bottles and the sliver of shade provided by their van, their only source of hope in the desert. The angry angel of hot death knows no mercy. Well, my first responder instincts kicked in. They were 80 miles into Highway 6, halfway to hell, between two points of nowhere. I lifted my face shield to talk and didn't bother to introduce myself. I asked, I have food, water, tools, and first aid supplies. What do you guys need? The girls didn't speak. The expression on their faces never changed. Just 1,000-yard stares that went right through me. Oh, we're fine, the man said. A truck just showed up, and we're good. We got a flat tire last night we spent the night out here that explained the despondent girls are you sure i asked you're going to be here a while and i'll be in civilization in an hour or so what can i do i looked at the girls again their sliver of shade was so thin that they were pressing their backs against the van nope the guy said we're good i wanted to dismount my bike slapped the machizo out of this mountain man and gives the girls every last drop of ice water from my canteen, then of course run like hell before he squished me, but I didn't. I glanced at the aid truck and the tire chain seemed to be going smoothly, so I mounted up and left. For the rest of the journey, I couldn't forget the girls' faces. Then I realized that by the side of the road, although I had lost the battle to help, I had found what I was looking for. American love and sacrifice. Not from the stranded travelers, but in me. This time, I was the one willing to sacrifice, offering to give all of my food, water, and supplies to these stranded stra- these stranded strangers. The American virtues I had been seeking were in me. That's not too surprising. I volunteered for years as a ski patroller at our local ski resort. Yet I find I use first responder training as much off the mountain as I do while on skis. And I frequently carry tools with me to help stranded motorists, pulling over to help people whose journey has gone pear-shaped, sometimes to the frustration of my own passengers. My crusade was not only showing me the best in America, but I guess it was also revealing the best in me. More was to come. Many days later, my journey took me to Red Lodge, Montana, a small town with a single main street lined by hanging flower baskets and family-owned storefronts with an old west feel. Yet, all I was interested in was my goal to explore any town, find ice cream, of course, I got my double-scoop waffle cone on Main Street and sat on a wooden bench outside the store, admiring my, blood, my bug-spattered and blood-spattered, I guess, Honda VFR, which had faithfully carried me through eight states and 3,000 miles so far. I couldn't shake the Old West similarities, me and my riding gear and heavy boots, my trusty red steed laden with bedroll and food resting by the storefront a cowboy's life just with a bit more horsepower. After a while, a grandmother and a grandson rode up to the store on their bicycles. Unlike me, they wore real cowboy boots a feet when pedaling a bicycle, actually. They got their ice cream, sat on the bench next to me, and ate silently. The grandmother was slender, fit, and had a shoulder-length gray ponytail that draped down her lo- her tall frame conveying a rugged, simple beauty that belied her years. She and her grandson dug into their cones and it took halfway into their treat before the grandson spoke. Grandma, he asked, can we go play? When our chores are done, sweetie, she replied. By the looks of the grandma, she knew work. Her dirty cowboy boots, her worn jeans, and soft flannel shirt spoke of an intimate, hands-on love for the land. No more words were spoken. After they finished their ice cream cones, Grandma side-squeezed the grandson, gently kissed him on top of his head, and they both rode off to finish their chores, I'm assuming. I was a stranger to their intimate moment, but the lesson was plain to anyone willing to watch. In this land, we work first, then we play. And my love for you is now and always will be unshakable. You know, our media paints a very different picture of America using shocking headlines of gloom and strife to attract watchers and buyers to their product, really. But that's that's not the America I was was finding. Everywhere I went, the true America was obvious. Love, sacrifice, kindness, to family and strangers. It reminded me of an old John Prine song that kind of goes like this. Blow up your TV, throw away your paper, go to the country, Build you a home, plant a little garden, eat a lot of peaches, try to find Jesus on your own. I think John Prine may have toured the country on a motorcycle. Well, I was on an emotional high. The 300-mile days flowed together like one seamless country road. My wife even joined me for the last week of my trip. We camped in the car and shared our love for discovering new places and the people who lived there. I was finding American values everywhere I went. The motorcycle hummed, the skies were blue, the fields were green. Life was perfect out here. Then the hard hammer of reality hit with a phone call from home. My dog was sick. Yogi, my chocolate lab, was aptly named, given his muscular 110-pound massive paws and block head. His loyalty was unmatched, following me downstairs, upstairs, into the garage, out onto the front porch where he would sit silently while I wrote. Where I went, Yogi followed. I had saved Yogi from death by his first master's gun when Yogi defended his master's truck with his teeth biting a stranger. Yet I am not sure whether I rescued Yogi's life or in fact, he saved mine. Years spent swimming with him in the Columbia River, endless games of fetch, or having him snore beside me in the garage while I worked on motorcycles taught me that nothing is worth getting worked up over or worth cursing about. Or more important than a good nap. He would go on a hunger strike when I left for motorcycle trips too melancholy to eat. Unfortunately, on this tour, my son called and told me that Yogi had not only stopped eating, but he was also not drinking. He had diarrhea, vomiting, and was lethargic. When I finally got home, my wife and I dropped him off at the vet who called us back hours later to say that Yogi had leptospirosis and the outlook was grim. I only heard that one word, grim. It crushed my soul. I didn't know what to do. Distraction was the only way to deal with the vacant dog in the corner of my garage, an empty reminder of my terminally ill friend. I ripped the exhaust off my bike and began angrily hand-polishing Bonneville salt off the stainless steel. I rubbed in hard furious strokes for so long my arm burned and sweat beaded on my brow. I bury my grief. Years of heartache from friends and relatives dying from cancer, motorcycle accidents, avalanches, and in the line of duty were buried in me lurking just beneath the surface like a landmine concealed by a thin veneer of dirt waiting to be tripped. I'd been strong for all my friends and family during those times of grief, comforting others and putting my mourning aside for later, a time that, well, never came. Then my daughter Emily came to my workbench. She understood what was happening and silently touched my right shoulder. I dropped my materials and stopped polishing. Well, the landmine burst. No more holding back emotions or life. No more putting my grief on hold so I could comfort others. No more. For the first time in years, I cried hard. My sobs exploded on her shoulder, tears like shrapnel. I sobbed so loud it could be heard from the street until my tears dropped down her arm and my snot bubbles popped on her shirt. I cried for everyone I had lost until I could only breathe in spasms. Yogi died the next morning. The death of my friend emphasized what I had spent my whole journey discovering. It's not about the roads. Searching for America is about the relationships. None of the people, or dog, I mourned. They cared about, none of them cared about my shiny bikes, my self-righteous stories or snaking roads I had conquered. They cared about me. And of course, I'm not alone. I spent three weeks and over 4,000 miles through eight states finding that love for others in cities large enough to draw the world and towns small enough enough to lack a stop sign, at world-famous racetracks and small-town quilt shows, in the middle of the desert and the dog bed next to my workbench. I found it everywhere I went. It wasn't hard to find. I realized that to find it, I didn't even need to leave my own garage. All I had to do was look over my shoulder. It was there all along. Ted Edwards. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we've enjoyed it and the people that have read it that we, since we posted it on our site with photos, by the way. Ought, by the way, you ought to go check it out. RoadDirt.TV and look for a piece called Searching for America. I think you'll enjoy it the photo footage as well. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our our time together. I certainly have. I'm Rob Brooks, your host. Until next time, Ride Life.